With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for February 8th, 2018, the correction, not a crash edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. Joining me together, a matched pair from the CBS studio in Manhattan, John Dickerson of CBS's This Morning. Howdy, John. Hello, David. Uh, and we're in the CBS studio thanks to uh, the um, great work and for which we're great, grateful of Dustin Gervais. Thank you, Dustin. And Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine at John's side. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. I have no one to thank. On this week's GabFest, the president's lawyers are setting him up to refuse an interview with special counsel Robert Mueller, even as the Nunes memo fallout continues. We'll talk about the latest twists and turns in the Russia investigation. Then stocks were down, then down, then back up. Why is the stock market, which has been so boring, suddenly so interesting? Then the very disturbing Rob Porter domestic abuse scandal that's transfixing White House world. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And we have a live show coming up. Well, we have a couple of live shows coming up. Our Portland show, as we mentioned last week, is sold out. That's okay. We are going to be in St. Louis. Well, it's not okay if you live in Portland. But we're going to be in St. Louis, Missouri and St. Louis, Missouri, both of those cities on May 2nd at the Sheldon Concert Hall. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live. Learn more about that show. Tickets are going quickly, so go there fast. It's our first show in Missouri, St. Louis, Sheldon Concert Hall on May 2nd, slate.com slash live for tickets. There is lots to talk about re-Russia. We can start with the Trump and Mueller tete-a-tete. The New York Times reported this week that the president's lead lawyer, John Dowd is urging President Trump not to submit to a sit-down interview with special counsel Robert Mueller about Russia. The president has said that he wants to talk on the record to Mueller because, of course, he did nothing wrong. There's no obstruction or collusion. So, he's, of course, he's glad to talk about it. But as the Times nicely put it, uh, Trump's history of lying has his lawyers fretful that he could be charged with lying to the investigators. And there seems to be some talk about limiting Mueller to written questions or perhaps to no questions at all. Meanwhile, there is continuing fallout from the Nunes memo, which came out last week after we taped the show and was a little bit of a dud. Well, John, was the memo was the memo a dud? Well, I think and and David correctly pronounced uh, Nunes, which um, uh, many of us might have said Nunes. And you may have heard that. But apparently, according to the good congressman himself, that's the way you pronounce it. Uh, Just on the on the narrow question of the memo, I think that um, there are two two ways to look at it. One is, I think, the bigger thing, which is that it had been built up by both its supporters, the president among them, the supporters of releasing the Republican memo, and to some extent, the Democrats, though people may disagree with me, which is they said this was going to destroy sources and methods and undermine the FBI. And then when you read the memo, I didn't feel like there was that much destruction going on. I felt like the biggest, the memo talks about some 
potentially, and I say potentially because we only have a portion of the story because the full FISA application was not released. And so we don't, we have a partisan picture of this FISA application. Um, but if it was true that, that um, the FISA application was, was based on um, information that wasn't kind of, that, that the judges weren't given the full picture of where the information came from, um, that should be discussed and it wouldn't be good if they were, if they were essentially hoodwinked. But the more it seemed, it seemed to me problematic and deeply problematic uh, issue with the memo was that it, um, it was claimed by the president to exonerate him um, on the, the, the entire investigation. And it didn't do that at all. And the person who offered the best analysis of that was Trey Gowdy, um, who helped Nunes produce the memo. And the only person who's read all the underlying intelligence material. That's exactly right. And I thought, so in the two reasons I felt like it severely undermined that claim is A, because in the Nunes memo, it says that George Papadopoulos and his conversation uh, with the Australian amb- uh, ambassador was what kicked off the collusion investigation. So there was within the memo proof that the Steele dossier had nothing to do with the start of the investigation into the collusion question. That was number one. And then the facts we learned about uh, about the Steele dossier and the investigation of Carter Page, which is the, which was the central issue of the memo, which is essentially that this partisan, according to the Republicans, that this partisan information from Steele was used to get a, a FISA warrant of Carter Page. But the Again, I go back to the narrative here, the the narrative that the FBI deep state at the highest levels was engaged in a conspiracy to keep Donald Trump from being elected makes no sense. If you look at the Nunes memo in the Nunes memo, it shows this application was made to the to the judges 17 days before the election. If you were a deep state anxious to keep Donald Trump from being elected, this is an awfully big bank shot to come up with information that presumably would be so damning that you'd one day release it and that somehow would get voters to vote against Donald Trump. And you kept it all a secret for the election, too. The more the more plausible explanation, if you were a deep stater who really wanted to undo the president, would be to take the information you'd had for months and months beforehand, starting in in June of 20, uh, 2016. And, and that was related to both Papadopoulos and his meeting where he talked about Russian dirt with the Australian ambassador, but also they'd been investigating Manafort that summer. So if you were a deep stater, why would you take the grade A material, which presumably if you let it out would hurt Donald Trump, and instead wait till 17 days before the election and file this and do this incredibly circuitous thing that might pay off or not pay off? It just doesn't it just doesn't make any sense oh, you're at so all. Naive, John. And then finally I would say that so all that, all that grade A stuff about Papadopoulos and Manafort never leaked. It never leaked before the election. And guess who was in charge of the Papadopoulos investigation? Who initiated it? Agent Strzok, the person who the memo says was so hell-bent on protecting Hillary Clinton and hurting Donald Trump and was a known leaker. So this guy in June knows about Papadopoulos and never leaks it, even though, as the Republicans have characterized him, he is obsessed with keeping Donald Trump from the presidency. So it just didn't fit in any possible way with all of these theories. And therefore, I felt like it was not a document that helped the case of those who've been trying to argue for a deep state effort. So, Emily, I just wanted to make one point about this question of burning sources. My understanding of the argument against releasing the memo, and maybe I'm just turning into my idealized argument, but the thing that makes sense to me is that 
you can't judge the memo on its own without knowing more about the underlying background. And so that's why the Democrats on the committee have their own memo, which is supposed to get released, perhaps with redactions that Trump um, may put in. But that the question of burning sources would go to the presumably to the underlying material in the FISA application itself, um, which the New York Times is trying to get released because there is a question now once you start releasing parts of this about what really does deserve to be classified and kept secret. And there is a really interesting and larger conversation about overclassification in the government. Um, and I don't, it's impossible to know how these things fit together because we keep flying half blind in this whole conversation. But I do think that's part of it. Um, anyway. Well, one other thing we should, it's hard in these kinds of instances too, because I think that all the huge rambling thing I just gave is the most important way to look at this but there there is and and we've talked about it on this show the you know the FISA court has incredible power and so it's kind of it's a separate conversation but you you don't want the FISA court to be able to go unleash this kind of surveillance of an american uh citizen easily now in this case let's divorce this from the fact that Carter Page had been uh, looked at before and that we he don't described know himself as an informal advisor to the Kremlin. Right. And we don't know, again, the full picture here, which is, again, why this this memo is damaging. If your interest in life is to make sure that the FISA court has accurate information and that it isn't being spun by the FBI uh, sleuths in order to go do something which we should be really nervous about, which is spying on Americans, you should care about that. But if you really cared about it, you would present all the evidence and and not cook it by only releasing the partisan evidence, because now a conversation about that important thing has this incredibly partisan cast to it. I think you guys make extremely compelling and smart points. I did think that Dahlia Lithwick made a really good argument in a piece she wrote for Slate, which is that for all its splodgy failure, for all the ways in which it is a, a mess and misleading and uh, doesn't say that which its advocates say it says the Nunes memo is a success if your goal is to sow doubt and confusion about the FBI, FISA, the judicial system, the the surveillance state, um, to undermine institutions, to increase partisan disagreement. People, it didn't produce clarity. It, pr- it simply left people more disillusioned and more angry than they were before. And the institutions are thus slightly, perhaps not even slightly, are eroded and damaged. And I don't think that Chris Ray or Rod Rosenstein is likely to be ousted because of the Nunes memo or to leave their job because of the Nunes memo. But I do think that the public trust in these institutions is lower than it was before because it, it just, it chaffs everything. There is now this confusion. And that's the, that's the tragedy of this, this uh, controversy. Right. And what surprised me when it finally came out was how little how relatively worthless it is for vindicating Trump, given the ways in which the intelligence community, the Justice Department, everyone was warning, please don't do this for all the reasons you just said. Yeah, it felt that that felt weird, like whether the flopping is the uh, is the penalty, I guess, in soccer and in basketball for pretending you've been fouled when you haven't been. It felt like Democrats could have been charged with that. Recognizing the argument you've just made, David, that this is not a cost-free event, but the but the but the the hue and cry beforehand was so overwhelming that this was going to you know undermine the entire 
it just felt a little overdone when we saw the essentially what was poorly written, poorly argued and weak on the evidence memo that finally came out. But if you're worried about degrading the institutions and you also feel like you're trying to have the back of the people who are saying don't do this and you're worried about the precedent, right? I mean, the House Intelligence Committee had never done something like this before. And I think that was part of what uh, the don't release faction was complaining about, although in the end, you're right about the... um, what you just said. It's a signaling exercise. As Can much we as go back else. to Mueller and Trump's interview? Which that is we... ex- what I was about to do, Emily. Woo-hoo! Let's go back to it. So wh- uh, to ask you some questions, Legal Eagle, does the president have to talk to Mueller if Mueller asks? Does being president get you some special ex- exemption? If the president refuses to talk to Mueller, what is the recourse that Mueller has? So, I mean, because we're talking about the president, we don't absolutely know the answer, but the existing precedent we have from the Nixon era suggests that, yes, Trump does have to talk to Mueller, that it will be legally dangerous as well as politically risky to try to duck the interview, that written questions are not a substitute for a spoken interview. So all of that said, why is John Dowd uh, one of Trump's can, can lawyers? I pause, can, I, can I just yeah. ask, a, interrupt and ask a question? I do not recall from Watergate that Nixon was ever interviewed under oath in person by a prosecutor. I mean, he turned no. over material, but That's he himself right. never there, submitted the to Nixon an interview. The Nixon precedent comes from the tapes because they resisted turning over the tapes so vehemently and then they weren't, then they had to turn over the tape. So that's it's different Clinton. from an interview, but it's Clinton who yeah. had to testify in the White House, but his answers were being sent to the grand jury to listen to. That was the kind of accommodation. And you could imagine Mueller's folks agreeing to that same accommodation with Trump, but to say written questions or we don't have to do this at all would seem to be falling, receding from where we think the existing law is. Um, and, you know, on the other hand, If Trump really refuses and Mueller and Trump then have to have a fight about this that goes to the Supreme Court, I'm sure that I would imagine that is not something Mueller's team will relish because it's ginning up this conflict before Mueller's team reports out, you know, does anything with its findings. And so I would say that's not I I can't imagine that Mueller wants that outcome. On the other hand, Just letting Trump not talk to them if they have questions that they want answered just seems to me deeply mistaken for all the reasons I always feel about this, which is that the president can't be above the law. A couple of things that strike me. One is that even if you had a president who was more associated with the truth as we experience it, um, (laughs) you would uh, you would. The facts as we have them. The presidency is a job in which um, basically everybody helps you create an unreality, both by the way they sort of bubble wrap you in in pleasant news and also the way no people rarely challenge you. So even if you had a truth-bound president, this would be a tricky situation because you're just not used to a situation in which you can't shade things. I'm not saying you have to have shaded things as a president, but you have this unreality you live in. In this case, the special counsel has investigated, uh, interviewed, excuse me, under oath, 22 White House officials, which means that he knows a great deal about what happened to the extent that people's memories aren't faulty and so forth. But I mean, people are. Well, and he has lots of emails and other yeah, things, too. He, he has a picture and a, a picture that is missing one piece. And if the president doesn't provide that piece and tries to put his piece somewhere else, 
Mueller is very much likely to know it. So this is a dangerous territory, and I wonder what, Emily, you think in terms of just a lawyer thinking, gee, I don't want to send my client into that kind of a kind of a situation. But the, the other thing that I wonder about is, Emily, you mentioned both the legal and the political damage for the president if he decided not to testify. First of all, couldn't he just plead the fifth? Isn't that an option open to him? Yeah, he can say that I, this could incriminate me. Right. But, then, but then, then that's that a problem. Yeah. So then that's but then the second question is this, which is politically, he clearly is willing to do things that um, would lose him standing with people outside of his base. So if he's willing to if he's not going to be uh, pressured the way a, a traditional president would be by the by the public sanction that would come from turning down somebody like Mueller, who is approved of by both Republicans and Democrats, then it becomes a question of whether if you're thinking this through in the way he might, whether the fight over pulling him in to testify, the court fight, allows him opportunities to undermine the undermine Mueller, undermine the judicial system, do something to essentially say the system is rigged, as he did both during the election, as he's done during these investigations, and repeatedly has shown that he's done even in his private court cases, whether it just, you know, because the alternative is actually testifying, which could be no fun at all. So two thoughts. I mean, one is that, you know, Trump has said that he is eager to talk to Mueller. So that is going to make it a little hard for him to turn on a dime and say, no, I can't do this because the system is rigged. When, in fact, the system just consists of like sitting down and answering questions. And just to interject, his lawyer on Face the Nation, when asked uh, this question, said, absolutely, the president will testify. That was Ty Cobb. No, that was Jay Sekulow. Okay, different lawyer. Because Ty Cobb, another of the lawyers, still, it sounds like, wants him to testify. So... There's that. I think the other thing is, you know, there's this idea that um, Trump is incapable of telling the truth in this kind of setting. And that's not true. I mean, when you go back and read his deposition in the case involving Tim O'Brien, and this is the lawsuit over Tim O'Brien's book and how much Trump was worth at the time. I mean, he does some he admits that he's exaggerated. He has like a grasp of reality in that deposition. And so, you know, when there is when he I, it's that suggests that when lawyers say to him look there's a cost to lying in this particular setting you can't do it that he can understand that the way any person can understand that and then the question is can he give truthful answers that don't create legal jeopardy for him in light of the picture and all the puzzle pieces we were just talking about and that of course is why Mueller wants to talk to him but i just to end on this cuz i think we've we've gone on long enough but Emily, I do think the difference is that he's now had he's now had a year of the drug of the presidency. And he I think when you're a private business person dealing with real dollars and and he was 20 years younger for most of those depositions, it does seem to me like he's a man whose whose mental capacity seems somewhat diminished. He the the presidency creates the sense of unreality. I'm not sure that he has the the savvy and the brilliance to get through an interview with Robert Mueller without lying a lot. I just don't, I just don't believe well, that. Well, then tough. That's how it goes, right? right? But that's why if I were his lawyer, but I would not. But that's why I would, John Dowd is Yeah, I would not let him anywhere near it. It wouldn't let him anywhere near it. It's, it's, it can't possibly be good. He should take it, you know, as far as he can, exactly and, the way John described. It's a game of chicken. I mean, first of all, I do think that it's going to be hard for him. I mean, whatever. Of course, he'll come out with all his usual bravado and make up some reason that he can't do it all of a sudden and his base will march along, I guess. But that's going to be weird. And then the other thing is, if you lose that fight in front of the Supreme Court, that's not a good thing for your presidency. Presumably. If you're a lawyer 
so what David, I know that we'll, we'll end this here because we don't. David has moved on. <laughs> but no, but as a lawyer, if I'm a lawyer, uh, I'm looking at where your duties lie here. I mean, it seems to me that the somebody's hired me. I'm going to tell them, A, don't talk and let's fight this all the way through. Is there any point at which you have a another duty to anything else? No. Yeah. Not so. unless you think the person like committed bodily injury to someone else. No. Okay. So, Slate Plus members every week get an extra segment on the Gab Fest. And this week's is particularly juicy. We're going to talk about emotional support animals pegged to the wonderful story of the peacock that was turned away, the emotional support peacock that was turned away by an airline this week. And David Leonhardt is going to come and talk to us after, about his brilliant column about emotional support animals. Are emotional support animals a sympathetic policy that reduces human suffering and creates human-animal comradeship at a high level? Or are they a toxic scam to get people's stupid dogs onto airplanes where they don't belong? We will discuss that. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member of Slate Plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister, or friend, an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The stock market has been up, up, up. Then last Friday it was down. And then Monday it was down, down, down a lot. The largest drop in history in terms of raw points, although certainly not in percentage terms. Earlier this week it bounced back up, but it's still, as we're taping down, about 4% from its record high of about a week ago. These gyrations have prompted anxiety and outpourings of, of uh stress among some this week. The stock market has been so boring for so long. It's just been positive and gently jumping upwards every week. Uh, so there's liberal glee at the fact that a president who has bragged so incessantly about the Dow being humbled by it, having it crater briefly. And then there's just questions about whether the stock market's drop signals anything about the larger economy. To discuss the market's drunken walk, we have our favorite economics writer, the New York Times columnist, David Leonhardt. David, welcome back to the Fest. Thanks for the nice words. Um, so one of the puzzling things for civilians like me about the Michigas around the, the market this week, David, was the notion was that it was caused, that the drop was caused by a rise in American hourly wages, that, that American workers were earning more and doing better, and that caused the stock market to retreat. So can you, first of all, just walk us through the logic of why 
that might be the case? And was that what is that in fact why the stock market uh, briefly sort of fluttered? I'll answer the second one first, if that's okay, because I, I think it's important for people who are trying to follow the news of the stock market to know that much of what's being said about it, you can just safely ignore. Because oh, including man. this segment, <laughs> no, no, this I could segment, go get a coffee now. That would this be fine. is going to be the segment that helps you understand it and then lets you ignore other commentary okay, in the future. Right. Uh, when you read a, a newspaper or website story, or you hear people on TV kind of pronouncing why the market did what it did on a given day, they are usually guessing. And um, so there isn't some secret place you can go and see why stocks fell. This involves psychology, and it's really hard to know. In fact, on most days, it's impossible to know why the market did what it did. But journalists have to try to sound like they know what they're talking about, so they often come up with what is the most plausible reason, and it might or might not be correct. So we don't know whether this increase in wages caused the market to drop. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. Maybe people finally got freaked out about Donald Trump. Who knows? Um, and I think that's just really important for everyone to keep in mind when they're hearing commentary. So if, in fact, the rise in wages is the reason the market fell, why would that be? That would be because few things scare investors quite the way inflation scares investors. Because if inflation starts to take off, it basically over time makes the value of their investment worth less. If you think about the bad inflation of the 1970s, the stock market did terribly during that period. And so rising wages seems like it might be a sign that inflation is going to take off. I'm very skeptical of that because for almost a decade now, consistently, people have been overly worried about inflation. Inflation is still lower than the Federal Reserve would like to see it. And so seeing one month of decent wage growth, I think is fairly unlikely to lead inflation to take off. But if in fact, that's what caused the market to fall, that's what was going through people's heads. David, may I? Two questions. One, um, is there another piece to the narrative of wages, inflation, and is the third piece or another piece that the Fed in response to the fears about inflation then raises rates and that hurts uh, corporate earnings? A, that's the first question. And the second and scares one- scares investors. And the second question is on the hokum that you were talking about so accurately beforehand. It reminds me a lot of the way people talk about politics yes. and how voters are behaving and responding. And so A, do you buy that analogy? It sounds like you do. And B- isn't it even more insane now because there are all of these financial instruments that on any given day can create a kind of automated behavior in response to all kinds of indices um, that we don't have any understanding of? And therefore, there's the normal level of hokum, but now because there's so many other kinds of things that can make the market move, there's an even greater chance that you're going to be wrong in assigning purpose to its movements. Yes and yes. John, you're like a secret economics correspondent. Uh, so I love you. <laughs> the, uh, the, yes, inflation is basically this disease, and it, it's bad in its own way, right? But then also, the Federal Reserve tries to cure it. And it tries to cure it by raising interest rates, just like you said, and the side effect of that can be a recession, which is also really bad for stocks because people make less money. Um, absolutely. The, on the second question, I, I agree. I mean, my it reminds me, this is not a perfect analogy, but no analogy is. It reminds me of those polling questions when pollsters say, what issue are you most concerned about? Um, and then they pretend that that is why people voted the way they did. Mm -hmm. Whereas in fact, most of the time, John, correct me if I'm wrong here, people make a decision based on a series of reasons that we can't always know. And then they answer the question about what their most important issue was based on who they decided to vote for. Totally, totally. And as somebody who used to treat the polls um, as gospel in every possible way, I recognize- You've had a, you you've know, had a conversion experience? 
you no longer no, do. <laughs> no, I mean, no, I still, I still, I still think they're useful for what I essentially originally thought they were useful, which is to give us nut, inferences and ideas about where people's heads are. And and then, as David quite rightly points out, that, that sometimes a, an opinion is a proxy for another emotion. Um, so don't think it's necessarily answering the question specifically in front of them, but that, that it does give us clues about other ways they might have been thinking. So I'm not saying uh, I've given up on them totally. I'm just saying that they're not gospel in the same way uh, that we shouldn't think that, uh, you know, things like wage increases are the gospel in terms of why the market moved. So How much did, do we have to care about all of this to ask a dumb question? I mean, we keep being told over and over again, the stock market is not the economy. So are we giving inordinate attention to this to start with? And also, is it is there any point in railing against the um, irritation of having finally workers get a raise be the reason that the market um, drops? Or is that just like silly because those forces are responding to this fear of rising inflation and to the, the, the sort of moral value I'm ascribing to this is beside the point. Wait, can before you answer that, David, can I just jump on Emily's question and add on to it, which is the market <laughs> is up. needs to be keeping a list the, of the, our questions. The, no, it's the same question. I just want to, to make your question even stronger. The, the stock market, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up fourfold since March of 2009. The economy is not four times stronger, greater than it was. So, right. so there's no, in no sense, is the 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 growth of that stock index uh, reflected in the actual prosperity of the nation overall. Not number one, number two. I have always found it totally weird that a minute of my newscast every day is devoted to telling me the string of numbers, which yes. mostly ha- aren't changing very much. And but it's occupying mental space in a way that like it shouldn't. It's just like it's just a tax on me. It's a one minute tax on me every day. And why is that? Shouldn't shouldn't we just be allowed to ignore it, as Emily says? Well, and the full extreme version of that is when they give you the decimal places on these indices that you don't even know what they mean if they kept the decimals out. Why didn't they round it? So, Emily, you asked, should we care? And I think the answer is yes, we should care about what the market does, but we shouldn't always root for it to go up. And I think that is the mistake that people sometimes make. So we should care because the market has all kinds of big effects on society. It often is a leading indicator of what the economy is doing. It can be a cause of economic problems. I mean, if you were simply looking at economic growth in the year 2000, you would have thought the American economy was doing fantastically. But if you were to look at the market, you wouldn't have thought it was doing so well. And I actually think that it started to to notice a turn. And that's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why Al Gore didn't do better in the 2000 election, because he was running, yes, while the economy was strong, it was also clearly weakening. And so the stock market's direction matters in all kinds of ways that we should care about. But we shouldn't simply, as so much media commentary uh, assumes, we shouldn't simply root for it to go higher and higher and higher for a whole bunch of reasons. One, David, as you were saying, it's not, it's, it's mostly benefiting very affluent people. There's even this funny dynamic in which if you're 25 years old, you may, you maybe you should root for the stock market to go down, because and then you, up, and then up, and if it goes mm-hmm. up too much up now, you basically have to buy in expensively. Right. And so I would say, if you're 25 years old, even if you're not hate rooting against the market because you don't like Donald Trump, you really should not be rooting for the market to go up that much because you are going to have many years of buying at the current price, and you'd rather buy cheap and then have it go up later. May I um, ask a question about um, interest rates and? Um, and the Fed and and the deficit and debt. Um, so, 
We have seen now, especially with the budget bill that it appears to be an agreement, um, plus the tax bill, um, a significant increase in um, in our fiscal or a significant change in our fiscal picture with no sign really that there's going to be any effort to deal with the underlying drivers of um, those numbers. Does that matter? Will that matter to inflation? Will that matter to the overall health of the economy? I asked that this week because we, we have a, a budget deal that's going to add $500 billion, uh, And I guess borrowing is at about a trillion this year, which is up considerably from last year. And when is it going to matter, right? Because if surely eventually it will matter. Yes, eventually it will matter. This is, I think that most of us who think about economics and write about economics um, have been too worried about the deficit over the last decade or so, 15 years. And I would include myself in that. I would offer a mea culpa of of having worried too much about the deficit. I feel like somewhere the Obama people are like having a long stiff drink as they listen to everyone's yes. mea culpas on this point. Uh, yeah. And look, to their credit, a couple of them screamed at me. Um, uh, maybe not scream is an exaggeration, but you know, a, a lot of them were unhappy with how much people like us uh, paid attention to the deficit. Now, there is a real long-term problem with the deficit, and it is serious, right? The, the Medicare problem is a really serious problem, and the kind of short-term deficits that we had early on in the Obama administration were frightening. But it seems, um, to answer John's question, that all of the signs are that we have a manageable deficit now, right? If we did not, the markets would be reacting with alarm to the increase in the deficit that this um, administration and Congress are now putting in place. And so it looks like our economy is able to handle the deficits quite well. That doesn't mean this is a good tax bill, right? Because I would argue there are many other priorities besides tax cuts for affluent people that should take precedence. Um, but it does mean that there is some room in the short and medium term to increase the deficit without creating some kind of uh, problem in the markets. We saw that in the Obama administration, interest rates stayed low, and now we're seeing it in the Trump administration. The long-term problem doesn't go away, which is really a Medicare problem. We have made promises to people that are vastly greater than the amount of money we have to pay for it. We really are going to have to fix that. Doesn't That doesn't just go away. But it looks like short and medium term, the deficit, as best as we can tell, is manageable. I saw a, a surprising, amazing uh, fact this week, which I, I was shocked to learn, which is that we've reached the point where Social Security is paying out more than it's taking in. There's no, no more. We are no longer accumulating in the Social Security Trust Fund. We are now Paying it down. Yep. Social Security is a problem too. It's just the scale of right. it is it's much as... smaller than than Medicare and, and relatively simple fixes could probably deal with so it. So does it... David, does that answer mean that we shouldn't be too concerned about the five hundred billion dollar bump that John was talking about in the budget deal if it passes the House as well as the Senate? I... I guess I would think of it as a cost benefit thing. And to me, the cost of that size increase in the deficit is not enormous. But the benefit of the kind of much of the kind of stuff that they're putting in the deal, I also think is really small. And so that doesn't mean it's a good deal. If they were using this money to me to fix our infrastructure, right. or um, right. give a payroll to tax cuts to middle class and lower class people or um, invest a lot of money in alternative energy, I would be all in favor of it. But saying that it has a low cost, it also has a really low benefit. And so I, I still don't love the deal. That's a very, very well put. And are you talking now about the military spending part or the social programs part or both? 
kind of as all of it. having low benefit. Yeah, no, I mean, look, the social program stuff, I think, has some benefits, some significant benefits. Uh, uh, you know, I think CHIP, for example, the, the Children's Health Insurance Program is a very important program. I'm not suggesting moving away from that. I just wouldn't want to make the leap to the kind of deficit increases that they're piling on when you combine the tax cut with the budget deal. Those look like they're manageable. I wouldn't then want to make the leap to, and thus, these are some pretty good bills. Can, um, two things. The, the market to watch in terms of the when the the uh, debt does start to affect us is stock market, bond market, or both. That's the first question. The second one is there's also wasn't there also a second part of the deficit as a problem theory that was that we covered and wrote about and people talked about over the last 15 years or so, which was the economic effect. But then there was a belief that um, conservative voters in particular would punish lawmakers for running up those numbers and not doing what was necessary and what we've we've seen certainly with respect to this budget and the and the tax bill and and the lawmakers in this case um all of them republicans because they're running congress right now that those fears that anybody would be punished are were were non-existent that's right well roughly non-existent exaggerated right i, yeah, I mean i think thank you. yeah that's... I, I think there's strong evidence that voters left center and right are relatively unconcerned about the deficit and that um, th th there's this, Matt Iglesias coined this term, the pundit fallacy. I'm sure you're all familiar with it in which people confuse their, policy, their policy wishes with what good political advice is. And I think we've seen that on the deficit, which is tons of kind of left center and right center people in Washington who want the deficit to be lower said it's really important politically, but it doesn't appear to be. I would say follow the bond market first for the deficit and the stock market second. The other thing though about the deficit is that it was a signaling item, as we were talking about earlier about the difference between what people think about an issue and then what it really means for them. So for a long time, for conservatives, it was a signaling uh, and it was a way to send a whole bunch of um, ideas to voters about your views about the Obama administration or about just Washington in general. Um, and a reason to shrink what, the size what, of the government. Yeah. What, is, what is the liberal equivalent to this hypocrisy on the right? It is this, this particular hypocrisy is maddening the way that conservatives are, were just could not stop talking about the stupid deficit for 10 years and then the minute the minute they got to do the spending, they uh, reverse field entirely. What is the liberal equivalent? Like, what what is the thing I mean, that liberal willing to shut down? Oh, I was going to say the... being willing to shut down the government was starting to look like that a few weeks mm -hmm. ago. Like you trot out the quotes about how terrible and damaging. I don't think that's necessarily uh, I, uh, equal in weight. But... Is it free tra or is it free that... trade or protectionism? Where... Well, no, I was going to say I think you, Emily, you're right about the hypocrisy there. Though, though it was kind of that was kind of one shot hypocrisy. Yeah. I mean, in this case, having covered um, conservative politics since the early '90s. The number of voters I've talked to and the number of candidates I listen to talk about the overwhelming stop all the presses, don't do anything else if we don't lower the debt and deficit was, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever heard about anything else more in my entire career. And it's not that, you know, and then we could, you could have a debate about whether you believe the growth numbers of the current tax bill, but it's, that's not even the point. It's that only Bob Corker was the one like waving the tiny little deficit flag when the debate was going on, that it was a complete, that it was almost entirely absent um, from the debate and, and the, the disconnect between the tonnage of words spent and then the puny little, uh, you know, shriveled sentences was what was so striking. And I don't, uh, is your question, David, about could it include values issues or or just yeah, on no, I, stuff? I, I, it could include anything. I'm just struck at how 
enormous the the shift is on the right and totally unsurprising i mean we all knew it was going to happen i mean you know nobody wants to be the cutter when they can spend money and it's, but it's but i just wonder if there is a if there is a if there's a, a liberal equivalent and i'm sure there is i just can't call it to mind and remember from paul o'neill's book that he attributed the quote to dick cheney during the early years of george w bush where he was trying to talk to cheney about uh, the deficit. And and I, I suppose I can't remember whether it was the first Bush uh, tax cut. And basically, Cheney said Reagan proved that deficits don't matter. Right. Uh, and Cheney was right. Right. I mean, he meant politically speaking. Right. Um, one last question for Emily or David or John. So the president has linked arms with the Dow. He's been dancing, waltzing at Mar-a-Lago with the Dow, taking credit for the growth of the that stock market index. There's, of course, a huge amount of schadenfreude on the left now that it's it's hiccuped. Do you think he's actually going to pay a price for having been so attached to it? Or it doesn't really matter because he'll just distance himself. He'll pick something else to dance with. I've changed my mind a little bit about this over the last week. And um, I don't. I don't think his bragging about the stock market matters because I think whether or not he brags about it, he'll get credit essentially if it's doing well. And whether or not he had bragged about it, he'll get punished uh, if it's doing badly. And maybe on the margins, it'll be a little worse because he bragged about it. But the fact is that voters are going to blame the president for the condition of the economy, whether or not he took credit for it himself earlier on. We've seen that again and again and again. And so maybe it matters on the margin, but I don't think it matters much. I think I think also the disconnect we're learning about in this presidency is between the people's feelings about the economy and the people's feelings about this president. Um, so it may not it, it may be the people have their feelings about him completely about non-economic matters. I also felt like the Schadenfreude that you described, David, really bled into, and maybe I'm confusing Twitter versus coverage. Um, but a lot of uh, it felt like a lot of people who, for some number of months, were saying the president has nothing to do with the strength of the stock market. We're and He should like, do that. We're hey. suddenly pointing out this inconsistency in a way that I felt look felt was really transparent for people who are otherwise supposed to be um, analysts and not rooting. So before we end, David, you and I are sitting next to each other, and you have a, a multicolored chart next to you, and we won't be able to display this to you, listeners, because you're listening, but. Paint a paint a picture. I will. I realize the charts are not m- the most effective form of podcast information. Um, and yet, and yet, yeah, yeah, I will no, keep it. V- so I think the the biggest reason to be concerned about the stock market is that it is extremely expensive right now. And my chart comes from Robert Schiller, the Nobel laureate economist, who has constructed a measure of the price earnings ratio that I think many people think is the best one because it is a long term price earnings ratio. It doesn't. It doesn't look at a company's earnings over the last few months, as as many do. It looks at them over the last 10 years. And by that measure, what this chart shows is that the price-earnings ratio of the stock market is now 33. And there have been vanishingly few times in history when it has been so high. In fact, there have been two. 1929, a year that I assume um, mm. you all will recognize, and uh, <laughs> right before the market collapsed in 2000, which I mentioned before. That does not mean the market is going to collapse this time. But it is, I do think the the market has less room for error because people are paying a real premium to get a cut of corporate America's earnings. I love the 1981 where you have that incredible reversal where it's yeah. everything is so cheap. Well, so that why didn't we buy stock? Why didn't I buy stock in 1981? And that 
relates to the point we made earlier. The younger people in their 20s should root for the market to go down. Think of all those people who were able to spend the entire 80s buying the stock market when it was super cheap. They have much nicer retirements than a lot of millennials may have. David Leonhardt, thank you for joining us. You'll be back for Slate Plus. Thank you. Washington has been transfixed this week or in the middle part of this week by the strange and troubling story of Rob Porter, a White House official who I certainly had not heard of until Wednesday morning. But Porter is a close aide to Chief of Staff John Kelly. He's the staff secretary to the president, means he controls the flow of paper to the president. And it came out in a series of uh, articles. I can't, I, actually, I'm not sure who broke it. Um, that Daily Mail, I think. Da- yeah, Daily like Mail in England. The and they, and also have, blogging. Yeah. I mean, anonymous. She was, one of them was anonymous that, blogging. That anyway. His two ex-wives, he's very young to have two ex-wives, but his two ex-wives both... <laughs> uh, I don't think accused, you want to stay married to this person for very long. ...accused him of of abuse, of, of spousal abuse. Um, one... One of those ex-wives, his first ex-wife, then posted a picture, distributed a picture of her with a black eye that she says he gave her. And the other one described an anonymous um, blog post, but it was then traced back to her, his uh, abuse, his physical pushing of her and also breaking windows with a fist and just an extremely volcanic and volatile temper. Um it also came out in the course of people learning about the scandal that the White House has known about Porter's history of domestic abuse for months and uh, didn't do anything about it. They knew also that he hadn't gotten an FBI security clearance, possibly because of this. And and the wives had told the FBI. The wives had told the FBI all about this, and yet had kept him on. He retained strong support from Kelly, from Orrin Hatch, who was his uh, his rabbi. Uh, one of his rabbis in in his career, and only once this photograph of his first wife with a with a black eye was released, did Porter then resign from the White House while strongly denying the allegations. And also, in one further twist, because there is never not a further twist when it comes to the Trump administration, it turns out that Porter had been dating Hope Hicks, the White House whatever her title is, communications director. Communications um, director. So. Man, I don't even know where to start. John, just can I say add something. just one one other? <laughs> um, well, that's always a there's a certainty that's always going to happen. Um, one thing also that just the fact pattern here is that he was also at one point, uh, according to published reports, dating and CBS confirmed this, dating a woman who reached out to one of the ex wives and said, "Our relationship has become emotionally abusive." Is was this your experience? Um, and so there's kind of a third. Was that during or before or after he was dating Hope Hicks? This was before. Um, So one of the things that struck me about the original reaction and the the bears repeating is it's it's not really the case, it doesn't seem to me in human experience, that a number of different people who don't know each other suddenly all come together and open themselves up to the kind of scrutiny and abuse that the three women we're talking about here could have received and probably are receiving in some way as all a part of a carefully orchestrated plot. It just doesn't, that just isn't the way it works. So for the initial reaction to be, this is a vile smear, for that to have been true, you would have to have three independent people deciding to engage in a smear with all of these supporting details um, and willing to endure the pain and um, and just life interruption that that would cause just presumably to undermine this this poor fellow. This is in this narrative. So it's more likely, the more likely re- explanation in this case is probably that 
the events that they told that they say happened. And so they should be taken seriously. And so the fact that the White House knew about these events and they knew about them because of the FBI interviews that are uh, required to get the clearance. Why? What did they do? Did they look at them and say, this is very serious. Let's get to the bottom of this. Chief of Staff Kelly said uh, at first that he was a stand up guy and then said, well, these new revelations are deeply troubling. Well, they weren't new revelations. And so that's this is a question for the chief of staff to answer. Were they new to him? What, what was new? Because they the knew photograph, about this. The embarrassing photograph was new. That's well, what's new. I don't know if that's what he was talking about was new, though. But but um, but can't we surmise that that in fact he was forced to confront facts that he had essentially known all along? But, I mean, but it did it require the photo? I mean, what we want to know is what's <laughs> yeah. the delta between what he knew as a result of the FBI interviews and what he now knows, and is it sufficiently new to claim? Oh well, if I'd only known. And 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 so were they going through just what kind of investigation were they going through or was the the kind of clearance he had a kind of workaround because they knew this information and basically knew they couldn't get him an official clearance based on what was known in the FBI file. But they still wanted him because and this is really important. He was um, a person with a lot of experience in Washington. He was in this crucial job and a job that was crucial to the White House as it exists now because the staff secretary creates order order of information. And you'll remember all the reporting that was done before about the kind of information that would get to the president that would rile him up, that was incomplete, incorrect, or conspiratorial, and that getting in charge of the information flow is crucial for any White House and particularly crucial for this White House. But if your job is to run things according to Hoyle, to have everything be ship shape, then was your handling of this information in ship shape the way you're trying to make the White House? And it doesn't appear that it was. I can't really say how disgusted I am by the story. I mean, Rob Porter seems clearly to be someone who is a serial abuser, and that's awful. But I think actually what makes me feel the most unsettled is John Kelly calling him a man of true integrity and honor um, at a time when he clearly knew the substance of these allegations. He just was missing the embarrassing photo. I just don't know how to square that. Um, I really don't. I mean, I feel the same way about Orrin Hatch. I understand that people can be professionally successful and compelling when they have horrifying private lives. But these men knew essentially what this what Porter was being accused of, and they chose to not just ignore it, but, you know, treat him with the highest dignity, give him the highest kind of compliments. I just that just makes me shudder. I I agree, although I do have a larger question, which is, I mean, this this person clearly should not uh, should not have been subjected to the praise and defense that he's been given by the White House. When you're some, what is the what what is what is his status in the world? If you're somebody who's been accused of spousal abuse that has not, there have been no criminal charges filed. Like, should should he not have been able to have the job? Should he have been able to have the? Do, you, do you, can you not have any job? Can you just not have a job in the White House? I'm just I'm just I, I just am, I'm I'm a little bit puzzled about how we should think about whether this person is fit to be a worker at all, or fit to be a worker in the White House, or. He can't, you know, he needs to be in prison. I just don't know the answer. Right. Listeners, don't mistake the question David's asking, which is a which is a really interesting one. Well, it's for about him, proven, right? Someone who hasn't been convicted. Right. And also or charged, yeah. right? You're not, not or charged. Or charged. Or charged. Yeah. Right. 
Right. And so I just don't want people to think like, oh, you're excusing what he did. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not. A million I, just, miles. I know I'm you're not. not I'm I know, not. but you, I can. No, you're totally you. a legitimate uh, question. It's a totally legit question, but I'm just the people who are who have, who misheard it, which I have some experience with this. Um, just want to put a pin in that. It's a really legit and interesting question. I think one little piece of it that I would break off is you have two challenges with respect to a White House. Three challenges. One is you could imagine this was it was blackmail material or potentially blackmail material. And that might have had to do with why he was denied a permanent security clearance. That's right. So that's the one. The second is you could you should, if you are his boss, uh, come to some conclusion about whether this behavior in his private life rec- represents a certain volatility and whether that volatility can affect the actual job he's supposed to do. And then the third is this fellow inside the White House might end up dating somebody else who's in an important position in the White House. And if this is the way in which his relationships have um, evolved, and there's at least three instances in which they have, then you're then you run into a, 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 the kind of collateral effects you might have from a, a relationship with another top White House employee. How about four? You don't want to send a message that this is tolerable behavior that you accept. And so, yes, there's a higher standard for getting a job in the White House than are you facing or have you been convicted of domestic violence? You know, if the women are telling credible stories that are distressing to the FBI in some way, isn't that... Uh, you know, a signal you should be paying attention to. And if you don't, then you're sending a message that you don't care about this. There are other overriding priorities for you. And I don't deeply don't understand how that fits with the military values, the kind of upright character that John Kelly has is supposed to embody in some form or fashion. I mean, Kelly has done other things in the last few months that have suggested that uh, he parts company with my understanding of those values. I don't mean to say this is it, but this really I found pretty shocking. Yeah. So do you guys think there's going to be... (laughs) I laugh as I ask this question. Do you think there's going to be any political cost? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they're gonna bear. Sorry, I just like after a year, piggy, after right? a year of like, this, right? Like, oh, they're gonna pay. This is really they're gonna pay a price for this, but they're not paying a price for the the rampant corruption, the, the presidential tweeting. But anyway, they're gonna pay a price for this. Well, I do wonder if there are women who voted for Trump on the margins who have been having some kind of like sick feeling in their stomach um, or prickle at the back of their neck for a variety of reasons over the last year for whom this will be a piece of evidence that could be a kind of last straw Um, because it just suggests such an antediluvian approach to gender dynamics. I think it's a, uh, who knows what will, uh, what will happen. But I think the, um, this does, pose a set of questions for the chief of staff who um, was, you know, a has a life of um, has dedicated his life to uh, to the country and has been is known as a person who believes in you know order and discipline, who talked about norms in a way from the White House podium that um, showed his public attention to keeping the uh, those norms. So what did he do in this case? What did he know and if he didn't know anything, how is that the case? Who did? Who ultimately received this information in these FBI reports? Did they sit Porter down and say, can you explain this? And did he give an explanation that was that was sufficient for them? It's just a window in, into the most orderly portion of the White House and raises questions about just how, how orderly they are and how seriously they took this information. Um, and so to the extent that it 
we're operating here in a different part of the White House. This isn't really about the president at all. You know, what does that tell us? I don't know. It's all it's about the president. These are his these are his men. These are his hires. Fair fair point. I'm I'm sorry. I meant he is not so far in the drama and the narrative as we know it. He has not been brought on stage. I'm sorry. Your but your larger point is of course right. And and as somebody who spent a lot of time trying to get the president to answer how Corey Lewandowski's uh handling of a of a female reporter reflected on his management. I mean Lewandowski was working for him, so what what did he do? Yes. I think similar it's, set of questions. Oh my there's god, a, there's so it, many domestic abusers. There's a well the labor secretary, right, was pulled. Yes. And then uh, Bannon yes, was accused. And, yeah. God. Well, I mean, this isn't really all that surprising. All right, let's leave it there. Let's go to cocktail chatter when John Dickerson, when you were having yourself a little nip of post uh, post show brandy and chattering with your CBS this morning co-host, what are you going to chatter to them about? Uh, well, I guess two things. Uh, one is quickly. Um, is the death of um, John Perry Barlow, who was um, both a Grateful Dead lyricist, but also an internet uh, pioneer and uh, thinker about freedom on the internet and and what that should mean and what it um, and just sort of the er, an early thinker about the about the internet and and um, open open internet culture. But he also wrote a wonderful list uh, when he turned thirty called Principles of Adult Behavior, and I encourage everybody to go um, look at it. Um, I am a huge fan of, um, well, I'm a huge fan of the whole thing, um, but, um, and also be be careful because there are there are different lists out there and you want the one, uh, you want the, the one, I think that, uh, I think it's 30 or so of them, but you you want the most extensive list. You don't want the short let's list. Make, let's but, make sure um, we post that somewhere, post a link to it. Yeah, um, okay. We will definitely post a link to it. In fact, I've, send it out on Twitter, which is um, usually I don't um, quote my own Twitter stream because I think that's a little weird. But um, but there is. Um, oh, and I should note that the, the person who reminded me of this is a longtime listener. Um, Cyrus, I can't I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce your last. Um, is it Farivar? Does that seem right? He's um, Cyrus is such um, a great listener. He's covering the yeah. Uber trial right now. I note and from he his is, Twitter um, a wonder. He's a wonderful listener. But um, maybe I'm maybe I'm maybe, there actually in this number 20 there are 25 so maybe i'm maybe what i was claiming was a was a shortened list wasn't so there are 25 of them i'm a huge fan of number 20 and number 1 number 1 be patient no matter what uh, number 20 understand humility but there are lots of they're really great anyway that's john perry barlow the other is a piece in um the wall street journal about jet lag and how olympic skiers are courting jet lag because it is such a mental freak show when you're hurtling down a um, ski jump that, you know, it's a crazy thing to do, even if you're highly skilled at doing it, that there are some that believe, um, and and to give you some sense of the mental um, strain of it, here is one former ski jumper, um, Jeff Hastings, who says, mentally, it feels like suicide. The closer you come to committing suicide without committing suicide, the better you're going to be. So they go around trying to get jet lag as a they way go of to, preparing themselves? Well, they, they the theory is arrive with jet lag and you'll be a little mentally fuddled. So you won't, so you'll just, muscle memory will take over. Oh my and God. you won't, um, you know, and the normal rule with jet lag is you wait one day to acclimate for every hour uh, time zone that you cross. And I think in this case... Um, the time zone is 13 hours or 14 so hours. So they're like, all 14 right, let's hours. go. Yeah, so 
Um, Pyeongchang is 14 hours. So anyway, the idea about these ski jumpers is encourage and court and and uh, and be jet lagged. Now I really don't want to be a ski jumper. Yeah. I mean, before I was thinking about it. Sure. Now I really don't want yeah. to do it. Well, you know, once you're stuck combating that emptiness syndrome, you might re- re- rethink about it. Hmm. Emily, what's your chatter? I think you have a we have a real chatter today. I am following with enormous interest the um, Pennsylvania Supreme Court's order to uh, redistrict Pennsylvania, the state of Pennsylvania as congressional districts. This is a delegation that currently heavily favors Republicans. It's five to 13, even though Democrats generally win a, a little more than half, or at least last time, of all the con- congressional votes cast in the state. And there is, it's so interesting what's happening. So the Pennsylvania Supreme Court relied solely on the Pennsylvania um, Constitution in issuing this first order, now opinion, um, the idea that the Constitution in the state provides for honest and clear elections and that that has been violated by extreme partisan gerrymandering. There's really no question by a variety of measures that the gerrymandering in Pennsylvania is extreme. And the Supreme Court this week, the U.S. Supreme Court, decided to stay out of this case. So even though the U.S. Supreme Court has Maryland and Wisconsin and North Carolina gerrymanders, congressional and state legislative that it is dealing with because the Pennsylvania case doesn't have the federal constitution in it. It's on a separate track. And so what's going to be super interesting to watch quite quickly is what happens with actually drawing this new map. The court told um, the Republican-controlled legislature to redraw really fast deadline, like on Friday, this Friday, probably by the time people are listening for a new map. Um, The legislature is furious about all of this, has threatened to impeach the five Pennsylvania Supreme Court justices who made this order, said that says that the court is usurping the legislature's powers. Governor Wolf, who's a Democrat, is the one who has to sign off on the legislator's map. If that doesn't happen, the court has already hired a special master um, who would get started. And there are primaries uh, coming up in three months that are implicated in all of this. And then, of course, the 2018 election. So I um, I mean, it's just going to be so interesting. And this question of like, how do you redraw the map, which I, I haven't read the whole 139 page um, Pennsylvania Supreme Court opinion, which was just issued Wednesday. It sounds like they essentially are telling the map makers to abide by relatively traditional principles, which is you respect existing lines and incumbencies to the extent that you can without having extreme gerrymanders. And you also keep cities together and what we call communities of interest, which is a more nebulous concept. Um, But it's just not clear how much of a change they're asking from the legislature. And so, of course, we're going to have this um, two parts. There's two elements to the fight in the next stages. One is the map and will the governor accept it and will the court accept it? And then the second is this question about separation of powers and how far the court went. And should they in particular have given the legislature more time to take their own crack? Um, Anyway, I've gone on at at way too much length about all of this, but it's really interesting to watch. Well, it does seem the gerrymandering has graduated from being an obscure, slightly comical issue to being a progressive obsession. I mean, we also had the news this week that Eric Holder, the former attorney general, is starting this group that is going to fund efforts to try to prevent states from being excessively gerrymandered 
against Democrats by going after things like secretaries of state offices and Nevada and uh, things like that. And so so there's this recognition among Democrats who've just been way behind this, that getting more control over state offices is important, both because it gives you, you know, local control over state governments and things like that, but also because they're getting so battered on these redistricting issues. Right. I mean, I, we should say the problem of racial gerrymandering has been one that uh, has had a variety of political shapes for many years because there's a whole recognized area of jurisprudence. The reason partisan gerrymandering is a new obsession is that the Supreme Court signaled when it took these Wisconsin and now Maryland cases that they might actually allow someone to strike down a map on the basis of partisan gerrymandering, which we've never, the Supreme Court has never agreed to that before. So that's why the door is open. And I think if you take a step back from this, what really is at stake is the lack of competitive races in the country and this question of polarization and the health of our democracy when so many congressional seats and state legislative seats are essentially just like handed to the person who is the has the R or the D, depending on how the district is drawn. I mean, that just is proving so troubling as a general um, phenomenon. And then if you're worrying about that, then the question is, how do we address it? And are court-based remedies the way to go? That's what we're seeing here. Or should states be creating nonpartisan commissions to draw lines instead, which is what um, the voters have voted for in states like Arizona? Um, so this isn't the only remedy if this is an issue that concerns you. One final point about this, actually, which I is not mine. I read it somewhere, but I can't remember where. An interesting thing about gerrymandered, partisanly gerrymandered states in wave elections is that a gerrymander can be catastrophic for the party that drew it. If you That's right. If you make districts where you've given huge majorities to Democrats in safe districts for Democrats, this few safe districts for Democrats, and then you give yourself narrow majorities in lots of other districts and many more districts in order to, so you give yourself a sort of a 60% majority in 13 districts and give Democrats 80% majority in their districts. If there's a wave which is going to get you, which is, which is going against you, you can lose all those relatively those gerrymandered seats because you, you have created no really safe districts for yourself while doing that. Right. And in Pennsylvania, we already had Democrats excited about races based on resignations um, and the polls about voters' preferences in 2018. So, and I guess the last thing I'll say about Pennsylvania is because most Democratic voters are concentrated in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, this new map is very unlikely to create, you know, some wild swing where Democrats suddenly have 13 of 18 seats. The question is much more, you know, marginal about competitive races in a few more districts, like four or five or three, than it is like transforming the legislative map in Pennsylvania. All right. My chatter uh Two interrelated chatters. One, I just urge anybody who's interested in anything in human in humanity <laughs> to read David Grand. Okay, to read David Grand's New Yorker story this week. Oh, the Antarctica story. I haven't gotten the, to that. Oh, yeah, I read that. Well, it's well, it's ahead. called the White Darkness. It's a story about Henry Worsley, a British Arctic explorer who undertook the most incredible journey, a solo crossing of the Antarctic continent recently. It is about the misery of Arctic exploration, of course. It's about endurance. It's about manliness and courage and leadership and love. 
it's an incredible story. It's just, it's probably, you know, it's almost novella length. Um, it's a very long, I hope it's the basis of David's next book, but it's, it's just very much worth your time. And in a relatedly, there is a series of gruesome stories this week, uh, about the permafrost of our cold parts of the world, including the Antarctic, but mostly I guess the Northern Arctic, which it turns out the permafrost contains most of the mercury that the planet has. And it's the permafrost at the moment holds all that mercury in. And as the permafrost melts, as it is expected to do with climate change and global warming, that mercury is going to be released with potentially really unpleasant consequences for us and our descendants in terms of brain development and, and um, other nasty uh, side effects. Mercury of all things. That's upsetting. And also we should just note that in a recent interview, the uh, head of the environmental protection agency questioned whether maybe all of this global warming might not necessarily be beneficial somehow. So to just, that would be Scott Pruitt, that would be the particular Scott Pruitt. head yeah. of the EPA. Right. So this isn't just right. So, but it's not just, I guess, just those two things appearing in the same week or something. That is our show for today. The Political Gabfest was produced today by Jason DeLeon. Our researcher is Izzy Road. Jocelyn is just on vacation. She'll be back. Don't worry, uh, producer lovers, Jocelyn lovers. But not to say that Jason didn't do a great job and could come in any week and do a great job, Jason. Just. Just to be clear. And thanks, Jason, for Whistle Stop this week, too. You can follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. And be sure to check out at Slate.com slash live our St. Louis live show on May 2nd. Hope to see you there. And we'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.